live in a world where most stories are just variants of the same story. Good beats evil, cowboys and Indians, prophets and loss. This story has been told a thousand million times and the ubiquity of it is what I would call a great tragedy. A tragedy because of the consequences it has on imagination, on future imagination, on our capacity to dream, and on relationships. The Brilliant Podcast is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories, ones with complex moral plays, ones that aren't so clearly stories, and ones that are of human size. Our motivation to tell these tales is a desire to see a proliferation of different stories and not just the simple morality plays of popular culture or the inverted but otherwise identical stories of the radical milieu. We believe that a world of free people is possible. We call these people the people who are in active pursuit of a free world, the brilliant, because they are impossible to ignore and yet cannot be seen directly, especially in a world that is dull and gray. This podcast is going to flip between telling stories about the brilliant, about brilliant moments. Ideally, we will spend as much time laughing as we do crying, out in despair and the absence of a vibrant, textured, and luminous shared real world. I am your host, Bellamy, and I'm joined by co-host Aragorn. Episode 2 of The Brilliant, uh, our little attempt to sort of break into topical conversations with some deeper thoughts and some reflections based on our own experiences. This week, the theme is going to be imagination. Uh, We're going to talk about that at the second half of the show. The way that we'll begin, as we'll always begin, is with something that looks like a review of the news, but I think specifically... um, what that looks like is is trying to talk in detail about some of the th- things that have happened in, in the anarchist uh, media over the prior week. This week, we're going to talk about the uh, the editorial that came out of uh, uh, the, the voice of the collective, which is the new group that's running anarchistnews.org. And uh, their topic for the week is, what is the role of anarchist media? And uh, yeah, I guess, uh, what, what do you think? Yeah. Initially, I couldn't help but recall in workers' sort of retirement statement, suicide letter, the bit about A News ultimately being sort of for and about the fact that many people who have anarchist ideas are do not live in a place with a lot of anarchists, do not necessarily talk to anarchists on a regular basis. And that struck me because that completely describes my radicalization experience, which... I did not grow up in any kind of punk scene or anarchist scene. I did not live in an urban area where that kind of thing was happening. I lived very much the 
kind of archetypal Midwestern suburban life where don't so much talk to your neighbors. There's not really any place to go. Um, grew up with the kind of dysfunctional family and eventually start to recognize that that has to do with cultural forces and, and society has societal implications. And I basically came across these ideas by browsing around on the internet and, and encountering anarchist media and the first anarchist book, explicitly anarchist book that I ever read was crime thinks days of war, nights of love. I've heard of it. (laughs) And later, um, shortly after that was, Derek Jensen's Endgame. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I had a now what I recognize is this kind of stilted exposure to those ideas. But if not for anarchist media, I, I'm not sure what would have happened. I would have been sitting with these doubts and questions. But I it wasn't until I was uh, 24 that I actually encountered numerous people who called themselves anarchists. Mm-hmm. And by then I had had those ideas for a long time, but it was only through media. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it from that perspective, because I think that while that's true, the other thing that's true is that people who live in a place where there are a lot of anarchists oftentimes don't realize it or don't sort of recognize Mm -hmm. it, because the the problem with radical politics in general is there aren't clear boundaries. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, here in the Bay Area, where there's at least four or five different anarchist scenes that all hate each other, there isn't... There isn't a, a clear sense of boundaries, or or the way in which boundaries are talked about are are like you know, Aragorn's fucked up, so mm-hmm. don't don't you know that so that that represents a boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, but if you're a, a sort of an open-minded person who wants to be exposed to new and different ideas, you might take that as like an invitation to like, oh well, mm-hmm. Aragorn's fucked up. That that means something that's worthwhile to 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 chase down and, and to think about. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I actually was talking to a, a mutual friend of ours about this recently and he was saying actually you should be glad that you didn't grow up in an anarchist scene and that wasn't the way that you got radicalized because then you were able to to think through things without having your ideas be turned into social currency or social capital that that then sort of buffets you about and and becomes less of this you know, uh, less of an exercise in how to critically think and more an exercise in social cachet yeah, to me that's less about sort of anarchists as an aggregate, mm-hmm. but it's about, you know, be thankful you weren't raised by closed-minded people or, or something mm-hmm. like that. But most people were raised by closed-minded people. I, yeah, I definitely was. <laughs> <laughs> most people were raised by Christians or yeah. capitalists who spent their entire, you, your entire formative years, you know, trying to insert certain ideas in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, uh, about 15 years ago, I was involved in a local group that did involve a person who was a quote-unquote black diaper baby. And, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was interesting because the person was basically raised by Love and Rage. Do you know much about Love and Rage? Not so much. So Love and Rage, uh, nowadays the, the terminology that's used is they were a synthesis organization mm-hmm. that, uh, that did not require ideological uniformity for its membership. It was a federation in its uh, later years. But it... it it was the, uh, the the group that birthed NEFAC right. and um, and then whatever the, the later NEFAC in, incantations have been, or incarnations. So so Love and Rage, to, to, if you were to pick up a Love and Rage paper today, what, what you would basically see is sort of shouting people, fists in the air, mm-hmm. holding signs about the particular struggle that they were, that, that they represented. And, um, and so this, this, this young person who was very young, 
in the context of the group 15 years ago. The main thing I would say about, about them was that they were incredibly arrogant, uh, especially around anarchist stuff, because uh, because it was their bread and butter. Right. But they were not well-read. They were not universally intelligent, uh, even about their anarchism. They just had a deep education in, in the sort of one type. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it, was, it was interesting because it was that sort of like the example, but it was an example of, of a person who's just raised by sort of intolerant people or... Or close-minded people, it wasn't, and in that way, was no different than someone who came from Christianity, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think maybe the outsider perspective can have that value of maybe you would call it humility, but also just you know I'm still learning things. There's a lot to learn. I'm not going to make these assumptions and and end up with these crystallized belief structures. Yeah, I think that there's there is a, a thing to say about socialization in our country. Because by and large, uh, when people do come in from from the outside, as, as you sort of described yourself, the way in which they learn and the way in which they sort of come of age does tend towards some uniform characteristics. So um, you, you're gonna define me right now? No, actually, <laughs> I'm not thinking about it in terms of you. But okay, that's fair. Um, uh, I, I think that actually, uh, yeah. An example of one of those characteristics is sounding a lot like the book that you just read. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, so you read Kropotkin and all of a mm-hmm. sudden you're seeing mutual aid everywhere you go. You're walking down the street. It's amazing. <laughs> Biological organs, human beings, everyone yeah. is, is in, a, in a sort of <laughs> unspoken cooperative dance. Yeah. And then, you know, the next week you read Sterner, you're like, you see spooks everywhere, <laughs> all around you. People who think that they're cooperating are actually locked in, in a set of lies. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, that's real. Mm-hmm. That shit's real. Um, but actually, to, to come back around, you know, I think that what you're really getting at is that the kids in the big city who get to talk to each other in some, with some frequency are a... Um, are a subset of the audience of anarchist media, mm-hmm. and and it's hard to sort of discern how much that they are uh, that audience and how much that lone person sitting in front of a computer in the Midwest is is the primary audience. Yeah, because if you look at the evidence, like the comments, which mostly I don't want to talk about, if you look at the comments of the, of a lot of anarchist news content, the um, it seems like it's a pretty good mix. You know, like the trolls probably are, you know, either someone who has a dog in the fight or that loner kid. Yeah. And But all the like know-it-alls who are sort of wanting to, to fight with each other in the context of the comment section seem to be big city kids who are, mm-hmm. you know. In a cooperative house. And, yeah. Or a group house, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're dissing their roommate as, as, as much as they're uh, dissing their ideological enemies yeah. or whatever. Yeah, and... A question that goes alongside this, which has always been one for me, is how big is that audience? How many people are there? How well distributed are they throughout this country and other countries? And yeah, I guess <laughs> there are some ways of knowing. Yeah. <laughs> there are it's some in, ways of it's knowing. in the thousands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I. Um, it's not enough to notice if you weren't looking at Atticus News. I mean, you know, look at a look at a news story in your local newspaper's website, and look at the tenor and the and the intensity of the comments. Mm-hmm. And 
doesn't seem like there's a lot of anarchy around. No. Just a lot of anarchists in small towns experience themselves as the as the lone voice in the in the in the group that they find themselves in. So let's say, you know, they have a problem with oil pipelines or whatever. You know, most oil pipeline groups has the one anarchist, mm-hmm. and there's different archetypes of what that one anarchist looks like. But that I, I think is a yeah. is a reasonable indicator of how many people are sort of like finding each other through anarchist media. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the heartbreaking thing is that most people who find each other demographically would have found each other anyways. How do you mean? Because they would go to the same places and they would... Same, they work at the same coffee shops. Uh-huh. They, you know, yeah, they, they're, they're basically of a, of a type. Is my perception. Mm-hmm. But, but perhaps that's my perception of a casual view, of a casual reader, of someone who's just coming into it, rather than, than the person who... Like, there's a classic person in anarchist politics in the Bay Area called Kevin Keating. Mm-hmm. And, like, no one would ever find him. He is literally the crank in the corner, you know, yelling at the stage, you know, every time someone flubs the line or, or says something inappropriate. You would never find him. Mm-hmm. If not for meeting. Yeah. So, the way that you're framing this it seems like you're getting at a certain impotence of anarchist media by saying these people would have found each other anyway. And so I'm wondering for you what the thrust is as someone who does a lot of anarchist media. I've heard some people such as agencies say that the reason they want to do their media project is they want to live in a world with more anarchists. Mm-hmm. So they seem to see a, a, a very clear, active kind of evangelism, anarchist evangelism. And do you, whereas I see you maybe... S- seeing that the audience already exists and wanting to play to them rather than have the, the evangelist aim, but I'll let you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that Little Black Cart, the, the description you could make of it is that it's, it's serving a pre-existing audience rather mm-hmm. than that it's doing a particularly good job of finding a new audience. The problem with the, with the agency position, and, and actually it's one of the few comments in this, uh, in this story's thread that I thought was interesting, someone basically said, that the day the days of DIY uh, uh, media are over. Hmm. That what the cool kids are doing now is basically going uh, into the inside to, and um, uh, sort of burrowing from the steer inside. From yeah, steer from within. <laughs> Very good. And um, and in this way, you know, the, the cheapness, the the affordability of digital options does come to bear. So, for instance, the, the clearest example in the anarchist space of of burrowing from within is Mask Magazine, mm-hmm. right? They took the the lowest hanging fruit, which is Vice, mm-hmm. which is doing a fantastic job of of reaching the demo, and and they basically parried it, parodied it from from you know from bow to stern, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so I really took that as a as a provocation. Like w- when I saw that that that's what they were doing, and and I really thought long and hard about sort of what that looks like compared to projects I would like to do. And um, and first of all, I'm absolutely incapable of doing it, right? I'm 20 years outside the demo. <laughs> so there's some technical difficulties there. Microphone shit to bed, and now Aragorn and Bellamy have to wait for us a few minutes into the future. I'll get you caught up. They basically wrap up their conversation about media 
say some things about mask having an impossible task. They evangelize with a simple message. It says riots are good, which resonates well with youth, but that's about it. And the idea of people burrowing, imagining themselves infiltrating a big company in a skyscraper and working their way up into a position of influence is a kind of laughable and untenable position. Anyway, then they move on to the next piece, which was the piece by Wild Reaction, RS, uh, post-ITS group. Um, ITS being individuals tending towards the wild, a group that committed several actions against industrialists and technoculture down in Mexico. They wrote a series of interesting post-Kaczynski manifestos, changed their name to RS and divided into four groups. Bellamy mentions that the piece reminded him, or got him thinking about, a Wolfie essay in which Wolfie talks about communiques and doesn't like communiques where people take on names or align their actions with grand causes, and he sees this as self-alienating, and that it's better to be anonymous so that you're not creating some larger-than-life mythology that's over and above you, and got the sense that that's what this group was feeling, which is why they're deciding to break into four separate groups and go their separate ways. And Aragorn disagrees and hears him telling you why. It'll be glitchy for a second, but it will clear up. Yeah, I think I probably feel a little bit differently than Apio on this because I, I think that uh, what's interesting to me or I guess I never take these names that seriously. Like, one of the things I love about CCF and the groups around the C- uh, around when CCF was originating were, like, they listed, like, the groups that were part of CCF, and they listed at least 20 different names. Yes. And they were hysterical, right? They were wonderfully fun. And uh, and I like that idea of that, of that sort of grandeur because I don't take this stuff seriously. And so in that way, the, what's been interesting to me about World Reaction has been the way in which they very much sound much more like European groups than they, than they sound like Crime Think, for instance, and um, and uh, but they don't have they don't bring any of the fun with them. Like this wild reaction, not fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I wonder just to press you on this a bit, yeah. and also to to kind of um, reveal some of my early Marxist reading roots. I'm reminded of Michael Parenti. I know and, him well. <laughs> And, uh, and, in, his, and his father. In, in, um, the, Michael's the, yeah, no, Michael's the kid. Michael's the kid, is he? Or is no, Michael the father? Michael's the father, yeah. yeah. Like Christian, probably, or something? Yeah, Christian, something. Right. So Michael Parenti in Democracy for the Few talked about the... in One of the roles of mass media is to make people who might think of themselves as ordinary people feel that they can't do anything to change society and part of that is that the typical stories that we are given by large movies for instance is that things change because of heroic larger than life figures and often it's just one or a few people often they have special powers or something like that or they're otherwise marked as not being like everyone else and it's because of their behavior that things change it's not because of anyone that looks like an ordinary person and so I I think sometimes these communiques can be resonant of those sorts of hero stories where you see people doing this, you know, let's say again, you know, 
Midwestern kid in the suburbs mm -hmm. doesn't know any other anarchist reads this and thinks whoa fuck this is crazy I can't imagine ever doing this and and these people have these dramatic names and they're doing all this crazy stuff and that's not something I, I could ever do mm -hmm. and so I wonder with the kind of anonymous and anonymous name and the lack of uh, talking about yourself in these larger than life terms I for instance there was one several months ago that came up on news of these people who had uh, damaged some kind of rail system and they put it in very frank simple terms and said we did this it was easy yeah. you can do this too and so forth and that to me is very different than the way a wild reaction uh, story or you know the late wild reaction reads well the f the second one the, the the plain language this is how we did it this is what we did story that comes out of the the Italian insurrectionary anarchist tradition, mm -hmm. right? The idea of the political practice being creating easily reproducible actions right. is at the core of Bonanno's critique of militant groups like Wild Reaction, mm -hmm. and that's and that's where sort of the rubber hits the road now because you know the CCF, you know, you can describe it as the child of Alexis, right? That, that Alexis is being killed in 2009 in, in Athens, mm -hmm. and then the, the accompanying three to four week Fuhrer. Fuhrer uprising, you know, true insurrectionary moment, um, that that, um, well, so, so anyways, the, the CCF were born in that moment, right? So that's, we'll, we'll start there. And they were born, and it was born by young people. Right. In other words, like Athens has this, you know, incredibly established, you know, ten times larger than the Bay Area uh, anarchist scene, and and those people are gnarly. Like mm -hmm. meaning that, you know, if you're 17 years old and you go into a room with those people talking, there's no way you're going to speak. Mm -hmm. There's no way you're going to try to engage them as peers because you're not peers. Mm -hmm. And so, the story, as the story goes, in the context of CCF, these kids sat down with with each other and were like. What ideas do we have? What do we want to do about this this thing that we're unhappy about? And that's that's CCF, and that's why CCF echoes militant stuff more than it echoes sort of the the grinding thirty year struggle of of anarchists in the context of Athens. It's sort of like it's a this generational shift. <sighs> I mention that because uh, Wild Reaction has a similar feel but probably even more sort of lost in the woods. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there's one thing that Wild Reaction and ITS before them really teach me is how important translation is. Because basically these groups came into existence as soon as uh, uh, society in its future, the, 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 the Ted Kaczynski document. Was oh, that? technological society in its future. Yeah. Or um, techno industrial society in its future. It, it took that text being translated into Spanish. Oh, really? For okay. ITS to exist, uh, and that happened recently. Yeah, fairly. Yeah. I didn't know that. And um, and to me, that that moment, and you know, and it could very well be that you know someone found it in the lot in their library and pulled it out and talked to their friends, and their friends were excited, and and it and it and especially, you know, marrying the news headlines to this document, all of a sudden, you know, you have this very this this moment that is inspired by the word. <laughs> the people of the word, uh, the green people of the word, but um, uh, so to me, I guess that's kind of more where I go is is in this direction of like why is militant groups 
in the in the seven in the nineteen seventies definition of it. Why is there a resurgence of that? Mm -hmm. I think that we've talked about Chris Blavidev before, but Chris Blavidev is this publisher out of the Montreal area who is absolutely fetishistically about militant groups, mm -hmm. and so they've been publishing for ten years these these monster tomes, and they're now an imprint of PM Press. Okay. But if you look at them, it's like, you know, Red Army Faction. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like all the big groups from the 70s. And these books are seemingly immune to the fact that there's been a lot of thinking about these groups and why we don't want to sort of parallel ourselves to them. And, um, yeah, anyway, so I, I, I mentioned them because they're one of the sort of few English language propagandizers of militancy in, mm -hmm. in, the, in this old tradition. But these new groups... You know, are sort of a new take on an old idea, mm -hmm. um, which is is like you say. You know, it, it is sort of these special, you know, unique, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, some of the <laughs> adjectives that they even use. I mean, I, I think, of course, they're intentionally taking on these what are usual, usually conceived of as denunciative labels. They call themselves extremists, terrorists. Terrorists. Yeah. They say that they are, are psychotic, even in this wow. one. Yeah, they say psychosis. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, you know, but again, I, I still love shit like like the, the, some of the names of the groups. Lord of, of the, the Green, Green Fire. Fire. That's <laughs> Lurking Wildcats. Reign of Arrows. Yeah. This is so wonderful. But but again, I guess perhaps I have a different, you know, position about reality or something. Like, I don't see myself dying uh, by, the gun, by gunfire. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, I did. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I'm sure that when they when they process all these documents through the through their FBI smart machines, that that's the sort of stuff that they really come up with. Up with is like they're from this age to this age. They are from this part of the country. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. I was surprised that they, this recent posting on A News didn't get quite as much as hate as Wild Reaction usually does. Yeah. yeah, which was you know back when they first came out was provoking uh, Ryder and I Free Radical Radio to to sort of be their most ardent defender. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. But, I, I mean I I'm not sure what that's about. I, I you know it could very well be because this came out in August and even anarchists are on vacation okay. in August. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just usually this like I mean there were some crazy things being said before like comparing them to the Islamic State. And, yeah. yeah. Well, why do you think that's unfair? Because I... My main issue, which was pushing me to their defense earlier, was this kind of um, equation of any kind of killing with therefore being motivated by a desire to dominate, exploit, or exterminate, or engage in genocide. And to me, it really just seemed like conflation. I mean... You know, not to get too deep into the problems of intentionality, but I think you know, different kinds of violence are going to have very different outcomes. And I didn't see the, the violence that they seem to be engaging in as leading to that kind of domination. And I also think there is a kind of... I don't know what to call it. Something like fetishization of deontology, where I don't think that... You know, performing certain actions that will result in certain people's deaths is seen as categorically different from a kind of passivity and inaction that makes you complicit, I think, in 
other kinds of destruction and death. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Well, I I guess the counter-argument would be that ISIS didn't begin the day that they raised a flag, right? ISIS began 30, 40 years ago with, with, you know, the assassination of uh, Sadat, with with the, the sort of rise of radical Islamic perspectives, which you could put in this sort of category. You mean because the, the, the genesis of ISIS could be said as, as having some kind of liberatory element? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially for if you're a Muslim. But, mm-hmm. but, but actually, I'm going further. I'm saying that 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, the radical Islamicists might have looked like what we're looking at right now in Wild Reaction. In other words, when they make the parallel, they're not saying that Wild Reaction is like ISIS is today. Mm-hmm. They're saying that this seed bears ISIS fruit mm-hmm. in in decades future. Well, I do think definitely any kind of dualistic thinking, I think, is very dangerous. It ha- I think dualistic thinking has the kind of seed maybe that you're talking about, and I do see that from them. strongest memories of being a poor kid, mostly left to my own devices, was playing with McDonald's Happy Meals. I vividly recall uh, some of the, the detritus that was around in my bedroom the, that looked like uh, spools of thread without the, with a thread gone, combined with the Hamburglar plastic pencil topper toy from uh, uh, from McDonald's made a uh, perfectly adequate spaceship that uh, in particular I remember enjoying because of its docking capacity and then in years future uh, I eventually got enough Legos where I sort of emulated what I what I would, uh, did with the Hamburglar toy uh, with with Legos that was sort of the more official way to do similar sorts of things that could actually look like a spaceship rather than Hamburglar hugging a spool of thread. I, at the time, I probably felt very alone, very like, yeah, I felt alone. But in hindsight, those were the moments that made me who I am today. The the creativity of using things for different purposes than they were intended for, the, the, the hours of obsession about how different things fit together and, you know, finding the correct spool of thread for, uh, uh, for my plastic toy the um the general umbrella that i use to think about this set of conditions that i feel like i experience in my youth is imagination so i've always talked about imagination being what i would consider one of my anarchist principles so today we're going to talk a little bit about imagination we're going to use a couple essays to to sort of fuel that conversation so we'll mostly be talking about text but text i hope uh stays as a as a wrapper around the part that I think is important, which is imagination. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination.
will begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation what we'll see will defy explanation want to view paradise simply look around and view it anything you want to do it want to change the world there's nothing to it so the two articles we're going to talk about are two books actually is um, a book called Millennium by Hawking Bay and a book called The Garden of Peculiarities by Jesus Sepulveda. And obviously a lot of what I'll talk about is the context of these books and why they were important at their time. But um, but again, I, I hope not to lose focus on, on the, the part of both of these texts that I really like, which is, that, uh, which is their break from uh, the way in which anarchists think about problems prior to these texts. So let's begin with talking about Millennium. Sure. Something I really liked that um, Hakim Bey says when he is in the interview at the beginning of this book, he, the interviewer is asking him about how he often will you know, lay multiple narratives on top of each other, which reminded me of how you like to talk about telling stories and telling stories as the kind of basic human activity. And he has a line where he says something about stack these origins or conceptual frameworks on top of each other. And I was thinking about imagination versus religious thinking or reification and whether they might be thought of dualistically as these sort of opposite impulses and how maybe one of the the strengths of imagination from an anarchist perspective is this kind of theoretical openness and resistance to having a, a kind of single answer and that um, I, I guess I'm jumping ahead I, I was connecting it to something Sepulveda says which we're going to talk about later where he says that uh, the state materializes itself in the minds of individuals and how it might be that the kind of surrendering to one story or one totalizing narrative is is very closely tied with authority whereas the openness to multiple narratives or laying these narratives on top of each other like Hakim Bey talks about is pushes one more toward an, an anarchist tendency. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, so part of the context of talking about the Hakim Bey book is, is and, and obviously when we're talking about imagination, you know, you immediately provoke me to talk about these two books that we just published by Peter Lamborn Wilson, mm-hmm. which is the, the, the legal name of the pseudonym of Hakim Bey. And the, the two books were called uh, the spiritual journey, uh, spiritual journey of an anarchist, and spiritual destinations mm-hmm. um, of an anarchist. And what is very compelling about these two books, and, and obviously the, the the reason that we published them in the way that we did, is that he didn't go to Africa, he didn't go to Italy, he 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 basically went on this journey post the 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 sixties anti Vietnam era. He went to the Middle East, and this is because he had, he had found some something in the Islamic tradition that he wanted to sort of pursue. He then spent 10 years of his life pursuing that vision, and he didn't really come back in any sort of way an Orthodox Muslim. 
Mm. And when you read his spiritual books today, they don't feel like interpretations of the Islamic tradition. They feel like something freaky and new. Mm-hmm. And even though I, I oftentimes make fun of sort of chaos magic and, and that whole sort of family of very Western interpretations of, of people's ideas, I recognize in, in that category that there is a, a depth and an intensity that I basically am not open to and and, and not ready for. But I do respect, I, I, I respect it as a sort of yearning attempt towards towards this. Mm-hmm. When you say you're not ready for it... Well, I'm not ready for it because I find it ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and laughable and, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But... I guess you do come back to this, you know, telling stories, and and I think I've often heard you say certain things that echo the kind of sentiment that I was getting at, and in a lot of ways, I think the practice of theory, critical theory, could be a practice of of telling lots of different stories to ourselves and to our friends to try to push us in a direction that we want. And so, when you say it's ridiculous, what aspects of it do you mean? Because. I actually, I'm going to come out and say I know almost nothing about chaos magic, and it's mm-hmm. not really, the, it's not something I'm drawn toward reading about. But I, I understand that there's, I think, a certain aversion to the single totalizing narrative, and rather this idea that the world's fundamentally inscrutable, and all we can do is look at it with different sorts of lenses. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to read chaos magic in, in the best possible light, okay. at least from my perspective, like. Um, Chaos magic is this hodgepodge of all kinds of other people's traditions. Right. Yeah. And and so on the one hand, sort of I have an aversion to, to that sort of colonial gaze. Yeah. Colonial <laughs> gaze is fine. <laughs> um but on the other hand, it has these Anton Levey esque Mm-hmm. sort of things. And, you know, Anton LaVey is pretty famous for, like, you know, wearing a high-cowled cloak, you know, having a shaved head and a, and a wicked, you know, goatee. Mm-hmm. Like, he was a circus performer. Uh-huh. You know, he was the P.T. Barnum... P.T. Barnum... P.T. Barnum. Barnum yeah. of, of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And, and Chaos Magic absolutely is touched by that that aspect. So So for me, the... What I'm getting at when I'm sort of talking about this is that, like, there's something there that is, that is a true moment for a lot of people, and perhaps we could just you know change this conversation to being about Catholicism, mm-hmm. which has very similar aspects of being, on the one hand, a circus show, mm-hmm. on the other hand, a whole bunch of other people's cultures. Right. Yeah. Um. And so in in both cases, like, I get that there's something there. That something is not for me, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that I that I sort of like shut down my brain and not accept the fact that that there's something real here. I'm actually in the middle of writing a piece for the next Black Seed that's on animism, mm-hmm. and one of the things I sort of say about animism, you know, the, obviously we all can accept sort of the anim, animus, animistic program, but the way in which we would experience that, that moment, the animistic moment, is absolutely filled with all these other things. Mm-hmm. In other words, we can lean down and appreciate a rock and then stand back up and realize the rock's street.
another battle against Skynet. This time the machines took 13 minutes of conversation. It's way too glitchy to even get a synopsis from. Aragorn said something about animism, and I'm pretty sure Bellamy said reify. That's a good one, right? Reify. Anyway, to learn more about Aragorn's thoughts on animism, pick up the next issue of Black Sea. And even if you don't care what Aragorn has to say about animism, pick up a copy anyway, because Black Seed's fucking awesome. Anyway, now we rejoin Aragorn and Bellamy, who are wrapping up their discussion about Millennium and talking about John Zerzan and Irony. As for how they wound up on this topic, you'll just have to use your imagination. But at least he's going so far as to say, and this is what postmodernists do. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than just whatever using the accusation, mm-hmm. um, and I also think it's a it's it's him being a little dated. You know, in other words, like like some like you know the way in which irony irony was was a sort of prime cultural thing at that at that moment in time, and um, and then sort of the the headlines around two thousand and one was that this was the day that irony died. That basically a whole type of sense of humor that, that was the 90s, that was, mm-hmm. you know, TV shows like Friends. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah sure. and sort of just the cultural firmament, that that was over once the towers came down. Because we were brought crashing back to the real? Or? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. I mean, th- this this was gone in a couple of years, but, but for the, about a two-year window, it was like, everyone was like, we all agree. The joke it's is time over. To get serious. <laughs> exactly. It's time <laughs> to get serious. And um, anyway, so I feel like that's like it's dating this book as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Fuck, the fact that AK published it though—it's just wild. They hindsight. found their feet. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, just a little pro- uh, preface for those of you who don't know, and for you. Uh, Jesus uh, Sepulveda is an active professor at the University of Oregon oh. in Eugene. Mm-hmm. Is close personal friends with John mm-hmm. Suzanne. This book, for many years, was was reprinted in GA Magazine, mm-hmm. and uh, was sort of talked about as like the anti-civ society of the spectacle. Mm-hmm. So in the, so so it had this kind of significant importance about ten years ago. Or soon after it came out, because it was, um, you know, uh, reprinted in GA, so it was sort of talked about on and on and on, and because it sort of like was was given this like, it's a pretty high mantle to call your book yeah. a modern society of the spectacle. Yeah, but in is that as far as its impact, or as far as its direction, or I think it's aphoristic tone. Okay, sure, yeah. and and the fact that what it was talking about was important, mm-hmm. capital mm-hmm. I. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what, what were your thoughts? Well, I, I went on a long philosophical rant <laughs> about it, for which I was mocked earlier. That, <laughs> <laughs> that I, w- I was very much struck by uh, the way that he was talking about this. I, actually, I mean, it, it's perfect with the, the storytelling, which I, I touched on briefly before, where he keeps coming back to the theme of, you know, we're told this is the best of all possible worlds, or at least the the best that will actually function. And so again, just to touch on the theme, to me, when we were talking about imagination and stories, that that it tells an account of civilization such that it becomes the story that we keep telling ourselves in a way that it almost drones and drones and drowns out all other possibilities, and then mm-hmm. therefore this kind of um, 
static behavior goes along with it and this kind of repetitive grinding work, wage, die life cycle that eliminates other possibilities. Yeah, I mean, the terminology he uses to describe that is domestication. Mm-hmm. And I've never been a big fan of uh, uh, using the word domestication. It's very it's a fraught, difficult word. Yeah, like, like obviously both Kevin and John, but especially Kevin, thinks that that's his theoretical contribution. It's sort of like, you know, he really gets into the into the into what it means to, to be domesticated and to domesticate. And, yeah, for me, I'd never have resonated with, with that whole approach, mostly because I just don't feel like it says enough or, mm-hmm. or, or it's sort of like a, sure, shrug, mm-hmm. what's next? Mm-hmm. Um, but because he uses that word, uh, Jesus uses the word, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I just feel like, like that's perhaps part of why that terminology is so coded for the anarcho-primitivist perspective. But this book is clearly not an anarcho-primitivist book. I mean, mm-hmm. there's absolutely nothing... Other than the fact that he was John's personal friend, G.A. carried the book and reprinted it. That's the, the only connection this book has to, to AP. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know, I, I do find the book in general to just be like... I, I guess it never engaged me like Society of the Spectacle did, but thoroughly pleasant... A, pl- a pleasant book that almost feels like the sort of thing you discuss with friends over wine, mm-hmm. which perhaps is my problem with it. <laughs> not just that because, you don't drink. <laughs> well, not, yeah, I mean, not only is it uh, uh, due, due to being straight edge, but it's not a safe <clears throat> space for you. But there's something soft about it that doesn't work for me personally because I'm not soft, mm-hmm. and and I don't like things that are. I tend not to like things that are soft. Mm-hmm. My my theory doesn't use a pillow. Mm-hmm. It's a very conversational style. I mean, it, it's. It's clearly, it's, I actually was quite surprised you told me that it came from a professor because it's not academic at all. Yeah. He doesn't cite anything, even when he makes references to to uh, specific people. He actually makes a reference to Society of the Spectacle in it. Um, and, you know, it's, I found it very pleasant to read in the way you described. It didn't, I don't feel like I got anything new from it. It was more just a, a way of, talking about ideas in a different way that I had had, which is why I, I went off on that whole reified self, because that's one of the things that's most exciting to me. <laughs> um, You're excited about being reified? I'm excited about recognizing my <laughs> reification. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it was written 10 years ago, and he, uh, more than almost 15 years ago, and he, and he mentioned Zizek, which is sort of funny. Yeah, he was not such a big thing at that time, huh? No, not at all. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how to wrap this off with a discourse on <laughs> imagination. <laughs> but I will say that the thing I really do like about him is the fact that, yeah, he's a professor who doesn't sound like a professor, mm-hmm. which perhaps has to do with the fact that he's an immigrant. Yeah. And, and his immigrant status has, has more to do... His voice sounds more like his immigrant status than it does like his uh, academic credentials. But what I like about this book, to the extent to which we will say that it's the AP or the the anti-civilization society of the spectacle is that it it does feel more uh uh like it it's not a pedagogy it, it's not a polemic mm-hmm. and and in that way i feel like anarchists have a lot to learn from a text like this because you can't actually say things without sounding like you're beating people over the head with the right with the right answer and i feel like a lot of our writing is suffering from that that burden mm-hmm including some of the other pieces we read just today. Mm-hmm. 
Wild Direction. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for for uh, listening to this episode two of The Brilliant. 